Welcome to Precept Responsibly, a podcast working to make precepting approachable over happy hour. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm David Hughes. Let's get into some precepting. All right, everyone, welcome back to Precept Responsibly. We have a great episode for today. Um, We are with Dr. Diana Isaacs, and today's focus will be surrounding ambulatory care and specifically motivational interviewing and ambulatory care for our learners. Um, Before we uh, dive right in, I think the question of the night always begins with what we all have as as a drink in our hand. Um, so I will start with, uh, Jason, what are you drinking tonight? Um, you know, it's a midweek. We are neck deep in residency interviews. I have very little mental bandwidth left. So, uh, I chose a, a Bravis blood orange IPA, which is actually non-alcoholic, uh, so that I can, uh, survive to interview many more candidates tomorrow for PGYT programs. Um, it's delicious. Well, I will steal your alcohol percent because I am drinking a 9% double Ooh. IPA from Treehouse Brewery. Um, I'm not drinking my my notable and quite famous disgusting combinations that everyone loves to poke fun at Dave for, but it's called King <laughs> Smooth Creamsicle from Treehouse Brewery, which is, again, one of my, one of my favorites. But more importantly, um, I'd like to welcome, um, again, Dr. Diana Isaacs. Um, Dan, are you, you have anything with us tonight? You, you have anything to drink or are you just, uh, I didn't know I was supposed to bring a special drink. However, I, I have water, but in, ooh, in addition to my water, I have a Laffy Taffy. So that's something, right? <laughs> I love it. I love it. Man, I wish you could send Laffy Taffies over the internet. Is it the banana? Uh, I have one? a whole container of them. The, the banana <laughs> one is, is arguably the only one that I ever eat. Yeah, it's the best. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, all right. D- Diana, can you give our listeners a little bit about your background, your practice model, and, and overall a little bit about your, your teaching practice? How many students, residents do you do you generally take? Oh, man, that's so many questions in one. So, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much for having me here today. Um, and I am an endocrine clinical pharmacy specialist at the Cleveland Clinic. I got my whole career started at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, where I went to pharmacy school. And then I did a residency at the Philadelphia VA, and it had an emphasis in ambulatory care. Then I went to Chicago State University in academia with a practice site at the Heinz VA. And then currently now I'm at Cleveland Clinic, and this is my seventh year there. And I have an ambulatory care practice site. I'm in the endocrinology practice. I work with uh, adults with diabetes, weight management, and all kinds of interesting cases that we see from around the world. And I precept residents. So I precept PGY1 and PGY2 ambulatory care residents, and then lots and lots of students. So mostly APPE students. Every once in a while, I might get an IPPE, but uh, lots and lots of APPE students over the years. We were we, Jason and I were joking around before the episode, and Diana wears arguably the most hats uh, of of arguably most people. Um, and we were joking around of whether or not she actually sleeps. And um, you know, we definitely appreciate you you coming on and, and taking some time to share some of your practice. So. And I told them, by the way, that I do sleep because sleep is so important to health. So I do indeed make sure I sleep every night. 
we are we're really happy to hear that um we're really happy to hear that diana all right get, getting into to our our topic tonight i think ambulatory care is such a a vital part um and you know a lot of our a lot of our previous episodes were focused a little bit on on the inpatient world and maybe emergency medicine but i'm really happy to, to talk about ambulatory care just because the majority of my career has been spent in the ambulatory um, practice up until recently, but I want to get Gage at least to set the stage. What are your um, initial precepting strategies to to learners in the ambulatory care setting? So let's say you know it's maybe their first rotation. What are some of the basics of of setting up a fundament for uh, to set up a learner for success um, in an ambulatory care model? Yeah, so there's so many things because one is uh, just understanding the disease state that we're going to be working with. And so I want them to at least come in with a background of understanding the drugs, the diabetes, which they should have had in their didactic, but we know often people need a review of those kind of things. The reason that's so important is because everything in the AMCARE setting is building on that. It's not enough to just know the disease state. It's also about collecting the information from the person and having that interview and collecting the key information that's going to be used to come up with an assessment and plan. So we need to practice interviewing skills, which I find is hard for a lot of students because they they may come in with like a checklist of the questions to ask, but that doesn't work so well if you just go through the checklist and sometimes people don't understand what why they're asking the questions and so it's about having these interviewing skills using that to be able to come up with an assessment and plan with the knowledge and then conveying that to the person that is there because we can come up with the best plan on paper but the person living with diabetes has to agree to do it. And so those are all things that we have, we have to and, navigate. And you bring up a really valid point that that strikes a chord. And that is, how do you get patients, people to, to, to help and, and be part of this process? So, you know, I think part of the relate part of, you know, my practice in the past was really developing that initial rapport with your patients, get them to trust you in order to open up. What are ways to help precept students, residents to start to develop those rapports? Or what strategies do you implement to help students develop those relationships? I think it's really good to model. Um, so I let, I always start off by sh- like showing by example, how do I interact with my patients so they can see that. It's really important, like the niceties, the pleasantries, like saying, hey, how are you? How are you doing? Like asking about some personal things. Um, I, yeah, I remember I learned this the hard way. I was doing something and someone said like, hi, how are you? And I I was like, fine or, or whatever. And they're like, I'm doing fine too. Like implying that I didn't ask how they were doing. And so it, it's really it's important because if you don't set the stage well, yeah. then the person does not want to talk to you. They don't want to open up to you and they're just going to answer yes or no questions. So modeling, teaching how to be interactive, and then also the kind of the follow-up questions. And this is what's harder to teach because it's like you can have a checklist of things, but then understanding if someone 
says something a certain way, like what's going to be that follow-up question, mm. which will be different based on the situation. And so I think that's something through modeling. And then I watch, I'll watch the interviews that my students have with the, with the patients. And then I can give direct feedback right after about what I would say, maybe what would be a follow-on question. Sometimes depending on the situation I'm in the room, I may ask right then because if, if, if it's necessary. So those kind of things help a lot. Um, also when, I guess when students, they do the interview and then we realize like major things are missing. I mean, sometimes they'll come up with a plan and we'll realize we just, there's a ton of things that we don't, we don't know and they have to go, go back in or they're not able to, the patient didn't open up to them because they kind of didn't develop that report. It's a little hard because rapport is something that isn't built in one session. Mm. I mean, I try, I like to think I try to win my patients over in that first visit. And a lot of times I, I do, but not always. I mean, it's something that's built over time by showing consistency, showing you show up, that you care, that you really care and want to help them. So I, I, feel, I guess these are things I just try to model, that I really care for my patients. I want to help them. I want to show them. They may not Sometimes, sorry, I'm just like going on and on and on. No, you're good. It's something like a CGM. They, they're like, whoa, what is that? I'm nervous. I don't know that I want to do it. And I say, it's okay. Like you can try it now. You can just wear it for a day. Or if you're not ready now, it's okay. We'll talk about it at the next visit. So I try not to pressure people. Um, it's really about like the long-term. Um, mm. Most of the conditions I'm managing are chronic long-term conditions. So it's not about what we do the second. It's about the long-term now, um, I, I'm going to take a 30-second tangent here, Diana, because I'm the critical care guy. I don't really talk to patients. Um, that being said, I do. I have dabbled in surgery. We do small volume transplants. I do a few transplant discharges. So I do my best. Justine Dixon at BMC is probably cringing right now knowing I'm talking about this. But um, I get nervous talking to people, like real nervous talking to people. How do you coach and guide your students through just like the sheer nerves of like, there's so much for me to remember to do and just the basics of conversation sometimes get lost. Like, like what do you do to like coach them through those nerves and maybe bring it down a notch for them so that they can take baby steps through this? That's a great point. So listening is everything. It's really more important to listen than to be talking. So just listening, showing you're engaged, you're really listening to what the person is saying. You're not typing every little thing down, only staring at the computer while the person's talking, you are looking them in the eye and you are having a conversation about it. Mm. Um, I think also, um, oh yeah, sorry. The other thing I was going to say is, is confidence that we're not expecting perfection. Mm. So, and I think I was really fortunate as a student, as a trainee, that I had people that believed in me. Like I, I mean, I did not, I mean, I did not always like, it was not always successful at the things that I did, but people believed in me and that really changed my mindset that I could do this. So I think it's really important that we believe in our students, our trainees, and that we don't expect them to be perfect. And actually the longer you're in practice, the more important this is because I have years and years of experience, so I can talk to patients and I don't get all nervous. Yeah. I can now talk to extremely educated people and I feel confident doing it. 
Well, when I was fresh out of practice, I would be very intimidated if one of my patients was a physician. Mm. So I think these are things over time we gain. And so we don't, we just, we want to be supportive of our trainees and help them to believe in themselves. And if they mess up, like it's really okay. Nobody, people want people that are genuine, that care. Nobody, like nobody needs perfect. Yeah, I'm definitely not perfect. (laughs) (laughs) But practice also just makes it better. It makes it easier. And that's why there's only so much you can just watch and observe. Mm. You really got to go in and just do it. And so I make sure my patients after the first, I mean, my students, like after the first week, they're going in, they're interviewing patients. I will watch some of them, but also I make sure I get out of the room too, because I also recognize that sometimes I could be making them nervous. And so I, I do both and I I just need to get the experience. And so it's kind of like you just throw them into the ocean and they're, they'll swim. swim. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And and you know, what I'm, what I'm hearing a lot of is, is right. Like the, the maturity that that comes over time and gaining that experience over time. And it's not going to be a a, a quick in and you're immediately going to be able to have conversations with any patient that, that comes in. Um, and, you know, part of this, I wonder, and this is taking a little bit of a backpedal, is that like students or residents or learners newer to an ambulatory care practice typically perceive and, and fall in love with ambulatory care because they're like, well, I have these really cool assessments. I can make a difference. I can have a collaborative practice agreement. I want to assess the patient, come up with a plan, and they and they go kind of in head first. And, and sometimes it's about slowing really slowing the learner down um, to really take a step back. And before you get to that level, can you walk us through maybe some of the strategies of, of that are more, you know, the, on the collection aspect of when we think of ASHP of like gathering the information in order to perform those assessments. Um, can you walk us through, you know, some of those concepts for early learners? Yeah. So I, I do provide them with, I mean, we have a template for our note. And so they understand what the key information is that we're going to be collecting. I think that's really important. So, cause they can't just go in there and blind. Also, I have a pre-workup sheet that learners can use to kind of look up an advanced key information, like the medications, the labs, so that they kind of have an idea in their head what, based on the the interaction with the person, what might end up being the plan based on that. I think doing that pre-work takes away a lot of the nerves because then instead of it being this like open-ended thing, it's kind of becomes like a multiple choice. Like, okay, based on this, we might do that. Like there's these four things we might do based on the person's answers to these questions. I stress going, kind of going through it. I, I want a person ideally to get to a place where, they can ask more probing and follow-up questions, but I don't expect that at first. My my first goal is really they can go through the template and ask open-ended questions for the most part versus like yes and no and then getting kind of the wrong answer because sometimes that leads to wrong answer or just less information. So that becomes important. I try to teach my learners to hold off on the assessment and plan because too often I see happening sometimes is that that um, they they start they ask someone about like their alcohol use or their diet 
And then they're like, well, did you know that actually like you shouldn't eat potato chips, that you should find something healthier. You should eat vegetables. Oh, God. Yeah, the critical care person in the room, I'm like, I just want to break things and fix them. Like, that's what I do. I like walk in the room, like, I'm going to fix this and this and this. So are you saying that like AM care learners shouldn't just come in and try to fix things? Like, No, actually, they shouldn't. And um, I love it. So I learned that way too. And a good way to describe it, I do a lot with continuous glucose monitoring and, and looking at glucose data and stuff. And my inclination, I've had to fight this, is to look at the report and find, look at that peak of hyperglycemia. Like, we need to talk Mm. about that. We need to fix that now. What did you do there? Like, why did you do that? What did you eat? Did you miss your (laughs) insulin? That is a normal reaction based on how we are taught as healthcare professionals. We we want to help people. We want to fix it. Well, that's the worst way that you could approach a person living with diabetes. That's, that's the Jason Mordino way. I, that's Fix why I problem. work at the peak. Yeah, I mean, think about how that would feel. And the way I think about it, I, I don't live with diabetes, but um, I had this dentist that loved to show on a big screen my teeth after she took pictures of it. And then she'd point out, look, there, look at that hole. That's a food cavity. And finally, I had to say, turn off that screen. I don't want to see. I don't want to know. Like, or I can't. So people don't, like, they don't want to feel judged. They don't want to feel like they did something wrong. And so my approach, that's why I have students back off and not do that. Mm. We talk about it first. Because a much better approach is to first focus on what's working well. We can learn from the things that are already working well and try to replicate that. And that is much more motivating for a person to learn, oh yeah, like I am kind of doing a good job here. Like my breakfast, I always stay in range. Like this is working really well. So we do that first. And then the way that we approach the things to fix, we do it in a way that we're getting buy-in from the person that they're understanding. Also, I don't want to educate somebody on something they already know. A lot of people already know things like oh, smoking's not so good for my health. (laughs) But there's other challenges that make it difficult. So if I have a student that's just saying, you know, you really shouldn't smoke, that's not good for your health. That patient is going to be turned off and all Mm. the rapport is thrown out the window. So that is why I don't have them fix right away. Okay. So how do you handle the the person that's like, like I've been spent the last five years of my life or six, however long they've been in school, learning how to fix things? And I think like just asking questions is like, that's not good enough for me. So we're not, we are going to fix things. We're going to be patient about fixing those things. So the interview, we're collecting information. Then generally what I do with my learners is I have them discuss with me what we've collected and what our plan is going to be before we go in and talk to the patient, because I want to make sure we're on the same page. I don't want the learner to start saying one thing and then I come in and contradict that. So we talk about it together. And often this is the time when we are going to make changes. We are going to fix things. So an example would be if we determine that we need to go up on an insulin dose, or we should add in a GLP-1 receptor agonist. And then we're going to take that to the patient and explain why we feel that this would be the best option. Mm -hmm. But it's just, it's so important how we present it to the patient because we have to get that buy-in. Unlike in the ICU where you can just, I guess, like give them the med and I don't know, give them an IV and (laughs) and get the med. Like the patient has to choose to take it. 
Yeah. So, I mean, how many times there wasn't good rapport with a provider and the patient doesn't pick it up from the pharmacy or they pick it up and they say, I'm not going to take it. So it really is important that we explain like what it's for, how to take it, like any potential side effects and that we, the benefits. So we do get the buy-in and it's really, it's shared decision-making. It's a team. I love it. Thank you. Yeah. I, I, um, I really think like, you know, as, as we're, we're going through this, that a lot of this, a lot of these assessments, the fixes all boil down to sometimes, I don't want to say, I don't want to use the term simpler tasks, but tasks that may require like the extra effort that early learners may not necessarily find quote unquote, my air quotes. I know I'm not on video valuable, right? They, they think like I've, I've had a lot of students in my past practice start like, you know, go into a patient interview and say, and I come out and I say, can you update me on their medications? And they're like, they're taking everything on their list. And I'm like, well, did you ask them? Like they said no, no changes. And, and I, and sometimes it's it's hard to teach in, in, pra, in, in the ambulatory practice that sometimes that gathering, collecting early information is so critical to set the stage for the fixes so how do you teach residents ultimately that, quite frankly, nothing is is beneath them? Yeah, well, nothing should be beneath any of us. So it, on the one hand, yes, we want to work at the top of our license. And it's one of the unique things about AmCare is that, it, especially in where I work in Ohio, pharmacists have provider status and we can prescribe medications, order labs, adjust things. I mean, really our scope, we have so much responsibility and it's it's really awesome. But we have to work together as a team. And so no task should be beneath us. And what happens is if you have that attitude, people don't want to work with you. People on your team don't want to work with you. Patients may not work want to work for you. I remember when I um, worked at Chicago State University, our dean at the time, she went and was fixing the printer. And I was thinking like, wow, she's the dean. Like she doesn't need to be fixing the printer, but she was because she recognized other people needed it and she could figure out how to do it. And she was doing it. And so I think we just need to help each other. I always help my team members. I, I always try to, if they've got a question or anything. So if you just, if you have that attitude that you're only going to do the one thing, you're just, you're, you're going to kind of kick yourself. Like you're not going to, to get very far because no one's going to want to work with you. I think like one of the things that I think about is like as an inpatient provider, right? Like we're constantly taught do med recs, do them accurately, do them really well. And I always get pushback from learners of like, uh, like that's like a tech job to like do those things. But like, um, I, I think Danny, you gave a really great perspective for a learner on like the value in that is in the information and what you can do with it as a person that allows you to practice at your top of your license to do all those things. And that, that sometimes you have to collect that information because you have the appropriate follow-up questions, you have the insight and the knowledge and um, that because of that, that task isn't beneath you. You're actually the perfect person for it. It might feel boring, but the data you get out of it is so necessary. Also, I think like as a learner, 
you are just learning all the different things. So they're all different experiences. You know, they're going to be temporary anyway. So even if like, yeah, in the case of MedRack, a person doesn't love doing it. Like it's a, it's a rotation. I do think over time, we should be looking at ways to kind of work optimally. And if there is a better person on the team to do a specific task, we should look at it. An example is like with patient assistance program paperwork. Um, that that paperwork takes a while to fill out. Many pharmacists will will do, will help their patients fill that out, but we have a social worker. So mm. I punt that to our social worker and then I can spend more time in the direct medication management. Mm, I love that. I want to take um I want to take a little bit of a of a transition and, and dive a little bit more into the actual interview itself and, and some of the skill sets that are that are needed for learners there. And the term that you know you we're often taught in pharmacy school is is motivational interviewing. So I'm curious, Diana, what are your what is your definition of motivational interviewing? And how is this different than, you know, quite frankly, the traditional means of communication or how is it unique in the ambulatory practice? Yeah, I mean, I think there's multiple modes of of communicating, but motivational interviewing is just especially being on a team with the patient at the center. It's embracing shared decision-making, open communication, and really getting the person to understand the value of what we're trying to do and want to do it. If people aren't motivated for change, then it's just not going to happen. If you have a patient who comes in with a really high A1C and doesn't really see what the big deal is about that, or just doesn't have any motivation to overcome that, it's going to be really hard. So a lot of times with that interview, it's also about figuring out what is important to the person. What is their motivation? Is it that they want to be healthier to run around with their grandkids? It's just, it's finding the core of what makes that person beat. Also, Mental health is like, it's just a really, really big thing. Sometimes I wish I was also a psychologist because I feel like a lot of what I do is I'm coming up against, you know, depression, diabetes, distress, like all of these, these kind of things that can be barriers. A lot of people, when we think about like social determinants of health and people's living situations and just all of the things that they, they have going on, um, we really that's where the interview is important to understand what is what kind of makes the person tick what is happening so that we can also individualize the treatment plan um one of the things i love about diabetes is that there are so many technology options now there's so many different ways to deliver insulin um different ways to like automated insulin delivery and continuous glucose monitors and just all these things with all of those choices though we have more ability to really individualize what a certain person should get, should try. And so it's about kind of understanding all of those things so that we can guide a person. And, and then I like to give choices. I like to say, well, based on kind of how, like what you described, I think these two options could work really well for you. Like, can I tell you, would you mind if I tell you about them and then talk about them and then see what the person what they kind of gravitate to more. So they feel very involved and they feel like, okay, I got to choose this and I'm kind of excited about trying it. I'm just reflecting on like 
Hey, I know nothing about diabetes. You've said like 17 <laughs> different um, acronyms that mean nothing to me. Uh, and then now there's technology that I didn't know existed. Um, Jason didn't know. Really Jason, fun. <laughs> Jason didn't know our podcast was going to turn into like a learning <laughs> seminar and CE for him. Well, no, I, I mean, I think the thing for me is like it, it gives me a unique perspective to be able to like think like the learner for the moment because like I am the learner. Like I don't understand many of these things, and so like I'm thinking about like okay. I need to know all these things and learn how to like do motivational interviewing and take all these things into consideration. So Diana, how do you as the educator, like hold your student or your learner together? That's like maybe like bursting at the seams with all new information. And like, do you have this conversation in front of the patient? Do you like step out and like talk them through like, okay, what options do you see as an option? Like, how do you handle that so that they have a space to like let their thoughts out in a safe environment and then kind of put it all back together so that you can do the right thing for the patient? So it's a great question. So I, I got some really good advice to kind of try to, I see a lot of patients. Like when I'm in clinic, I really, I do see a lot, but for my learners, I really try to have them focus on a couple patients and I try to build it week to week. So like the first week, it could be two patients per half day. And so that way it allows them more time to really work up the patients that I'm assigning them to. I also, I try not to assign them more complex patients. So like the ones on insulin pumps, I, like, I understand like under, like learning insulin pumps is something that takes a longer time. You're not going to get it in a four to six week rotation. So I have them focus on, on that. And then we build up based on their progress, you know, how they're doing. We, we try to add more patients throughout the weeks that are happening. In terms of this discussion, we do have it outside of the room. So the typical flow is that the, the learner will interview the patient, either with me in the room or out of the room, depending on the progression. And then we'll just say to the patient, hey, do you mind? We're going to step out for a few minutes. We're going to discuss what we think is the best plan, and then we'll come back into the room. And so at that point, we do step out. And we have a conversation about it. And this is where I'll I'll ask the learner what they're thinking. And hopefully they've done their pre-work. So it kind of narrowed it down to a few different <laughs> options. And we'll talk about it. And then I'll give my two cents about I'll basically kind of I'll agree or I'll agree and modify or I'll I'll be like, well, actually. <laughs> but we 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 talk about that and then we go back into the room and I have the learner basically share that information with the with the patient absolutely i'll be honest i'm the learner who's not prepared today i don't know <laughs> diabetes but thanks diana i really appreciate that. that's a great insight one of the things that that struck me um is is when you you started alluding to diana social determinants of health and you know we start talking about a lot of these very more novel novel ways of monitoring, right? Continuous blood glucose monitoring. Um, and access becomes a huge issue in the ambulatory space. And I think my, my question is is a little bit compounded, but, but ultimately, how do you encourage learners to one, address some of these social determinants of health and have an emphasis on access in this space while still feeling like they're getting their clinical fulfillment, if that make, if that makes sense? Yeah, I mean, access is a big deal in 
really in any outpatient setting. And I see a very diverse population of like Medicaid, Medicare, commercial. So it's always a consideration. And first, I really encourage our learners not to make assumptions about what people can afford and not afford based on any external factors and things. We always try to ask about affordability to patients because you can be surprised. Someone that you think, oh, they have a good job, they have commercial insurance, should be able to afford it. And sometimes they can't. A lot more people than we realize are rationing medications. And especially if someone's not meeting their goals, like it, it can be due to medication rationing. So it is something that should always be on our radar. I am fortunate that like we have a social worker in my practice, but we also should be thinking about the potential options, things like copay cards and programs for commercial insurance patients. The uh, patient assistance programs are great and many more people qualify for them than we realize. Medicare is a little bit tougher, although many of them can also qualify for patient assistance programs. So it has to be, it has to be a consideration, but I also think we should try to get the optimal therapies for people we shouldn't say, oh, well, because of their situation and this is going on, we'll just give them a sulfonylurea. Like we should still try to get them. If there's someone that they have a need to be on a GLP-1 and SGLT-2 inhibitor, we should try to get it for them. And I'm really happy to say that there's been a lot of advocacy in Ohio. And in fact, Medicaid now readily covers continuous glucose monitoring for any person with diabetes, regardless of their regimen, if they're on insulin, not on insulin. And so that's been a game changer because now we can't say, oh, well, this, this person's on Medicaid, they can't afford it. Now we, we can give CGM to all of them. So um, yeah, it, it is a big deal in, in Amcare. And, you know, from a lot of the experience I had with Ankh, unfortunately, a lot of patients don't love talking about this because there's a lot of sensitivity surrounding this. Um, a lot of times it, it's harder to get this information out of patients, right? Like that they are experiencing some of these disparities in our health system that they do need the assistance. So I guess like whether it be related to getting some of that information out or maybe alternatively, it's just a patient that tends to have more of a of an introverted personality where they're not they don't want to talk about all the, their problems. How do you, how do you still facilitate meaningful conversation with those patients and get some of that information out of them? So one of the principles of motivational interviewing is to ask permission. If you ask permission before broaching a subject, that empowers the person. So it can be as simple as, hey, do you mind if I ask you a couple questions related to medication cost? And so you're asking permission and then you can follow it up. If, I mean, usually when you ask permission in a nice way, people usually say yes. And so that's a way to just, and, and you can make it like it's not a big deal. Like this is a question. These are questions that you ask anybody. And also if you've built rapport, if you've built a relationship, you're showing that you're not judgmental. And that's why it's important that we're not just, especially with numbers and data, like going back to the whole, I want to fix things. We don't want to come across judgmental because then people don't want to tell us the truth. They want mm. to tell us what they think we want to hear. They want to tell us they eat perfectly and they, and that's not what we want. We want to hear the truth. So yeah. it's really important that we're not judgmental. Um, Diana, I, I, I'm getting a very clear picture of like the, like complications and challenges of trying to create like a strong relationship take all of these different factors, try to get that information out of people, create a really detailed plan. And then um, like 
essentially like lay out a suite of options or, or ways to get people to buy into each one of those plans, depending on like what's best for them. How do you break all of that down for someone in a six week rotation or like a month long rotation, maybe like a PGY one that's not like in a longitudinal Amgar experience? How do you teach them to like create those really strong relationships when they're probably only going to see like their first patient one more time if they're on a monthly schedule and may not see many of these patients ever again? It's a it's a good question because depending on the scenario, I mean, I have some patients that I am following weekly um, for certain conditions like post kidney transplant or in pregnancy. But yeah, there's a lot of patients there they may only see once. So I mean, I think the idea of a rotation is that it is kind of the tip of the iceberg. It's to gain an experience, see how much you like that experience, start building some of these skills, but it's not realistic for someone to gain all of these skills in this short time period. I mean, it's taken me years and years and I I don't feel like I'm perfect. Like, am I perfect in everything I say every patient encounter? No, like sometimes I say the wrong thing or I could have said something in a better way. So I think it's about growth. The idea is that we're trying to grow. We're, we're learning, we're improving. And I just want people to see what's possible in this space, that there's so much a pharmacist can do. We need more pharmacists in this area. We really can contribute to the care team. We can make such a difference in people's lives. And so that's those are the things I hope people take away from my rotation. It's such, I mean, it, it, it all, again, this this all really resonates. And I, I think it's it's great you know, that, you know, we're building this into, into these rotations. So I appreciate your perspective there. I'm going to take us on one more, one more turn. So Diana, let's say I have like the, the Jason Mordino in front of me as a student who is so set on, on the inpatient world and wants nothing to do with the ambulatory care practice. Um, convince, convince, you know, in, in all seriousness, there's a lot of skills gained from the ambulatory practice that are that are definitely applied in the inpatient realm and how do you make make that transferable for students and what aspects of an ambulatory care experience are translatable to a to an inpatient specialist or pharmacist yeah i think the interaction with the team is going to be similar i mean even like i understand a lot of inpatient like you're not having to talk directly to the patients but you're still you're working with a team and I also work with a team. I work with our endos, our nurse practitioners, dietitians, nurses, social worker. And so those interactions are really important. We don't want to work in silos. We want to be working together. And so I think those are skills that are really, um, really important. And I also think some of the, the therapeutics that goes along with it can be helpful too, like kind of seeing the long-term outcomes because we do, there's a lot of transitions of care involved in what I do. I'm seeing people after they've been discharged. And so kind of seeing that end of it, well, what happens when the patient goes home? And unfortunately, it does not always rainbows. It um, It's a lot when people are in the hospital and get discharged. It's a lot of instructions, a lot of things to remember. And so not surprisingly, there's a lot of times people don't remember, they don't do something exactly as directed. And so I think by seeing that side of it, it can make a person a stronger inpatient clinician. Absolutely. Jason, you taking notes? I am. <laughs> I I know that Justine is probably cringing about the many discharges, transplant discharges I've done and and knowing the hot mess that she in, inherits. But thankfully we have a process of like, they go home with a weak filled pillbox by a pharmacist and them. So like 
they should be okay for at least the first week. And Justine always meets with them within four days. So did you not learn anything it's about rapport, Jason? I know long-term I... relationships, not just the one week. <laughs> but I only get to see them for what, maybe two days if I'm on service, like the last two days before they're discharged. So it is you're right. It's really hard to build a rapport in two days. Um, yeah. and at the same time, teach them how to take, you know, a half dozen new meds, stop taking a half dozen other meds, like yeah, it's it's hard. Um, it's definitely hard. I don't envy anyone that has to do this on a regular basis, but um, I, I agree. There's a lot of like highly transferable skills. Um, do you think just as like one quick, like hopefully short answer question, is motivational interviewing something you could use in patient? Well, I think it is. Um, I guess it depends your role. I mm. mean, if you're, especially if you're providing counseling education about the medications to the person or their family, I would think that those are skills that you could still be using in those settings. Absolutely. Thanks, Diana. We wrap up with one final question for all of our, our interviews. Um, so as we wind down, Diana, uh, what is one thing you've taken away from a past preceptor or mentor that you continue to use in your day-to-day practice? So My residency director, I remember she said to me, anyone can identify problems. We need people that can identify solutions. And that is something that has stuck with me so like, you know, just forever, because it's like, it's easy to complain about what could be better. I want it this way. Oh, this is horrible. But yeah. Okay. So then how can, like you said, how can we fix it? And so that it's been a skill that's been really useful in my career because when I came to Cleveland clinic, it, my role wasn't really very developed. It was like, okay, we know we want a pharmacist in Mm. the endocrine clinic, but we're not sure what we want you to do. And so I spent a lot of time observing and seeing, well, what maybe is not optimal and how can we make it better? And so I think this is a skill for preceptors, for learners. I know if a learner comes to my rotation and sees a process that could be better, I I want to hear it. If they've got, like they've got a potential solution, I can learn from my trainees. And so I just would encourage kind of having that attitude, look for solutions, not problems. You know, it's, um, that's like a life skill. Like that's beyond pharmacy. Like that is just like, that's a life skill in general. Like look at, look at solutions, look for solutions, not, not problems. Thank you, Diana. That was a, a that was a great takeaway. Um, well, uh, while we look for some solutions here, and if other people are looking for some solutions to share with you uh, after this episode, what's the best way for our listeners to maybe get in touch, continue the conversation, or say somebody wants to hire you for a speaking engagement, et cetera? Like, how can they get in touch with you, Diana? Sure. Well, you can always email me, dianamisaacs at gmail.com. I have a website. Uh, it's diabetes-pharmacist.com. I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram, Twitter at Diana M. Isaacs. And I even have a podcast called Diabetes Dialogue, Technology, Therapeutics, and Real World Perspectives. Um, It's a really long name. But anyway, you can get links to the podcast either on LinkedIn or on my website. So um, if you have an interest in diabetes and you want to hear some real world discussion about it, you can tune into that. Wow. Um, Now... 
now I know why I asked you if you sleep at all. <laughs> um, but you really scored on that website uh, domain name, like solid Thank work. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> uh, Diana, for, for myself and Dave here at Precept Responsibly, thank you so much for joining us. It was a great conversation. You're um, welcome. Thanks for having me. Of course. Hi, everyone. This is Spencer Sutton with Precept Responsibly, here to discuss with you all the episode you literally just finished listening to, a motivational interviewing and ambulatory care with Dr. Diana Isaacs. Uh, so right off the bat, it's clear that precepting and ambulatory care has unique differences compared to the inpatient and some of the other uh, care sites that we might take learners. Uh, of course, there is still an extensive focus on the clinical aspects of uh, the management of these chronic disease states. But additionally, we get into challenges with teaching motivational interviewing and how to allow a learner to really work up a patient, work with them towards their own uh, care goals, and implement a plan that they can follow in the long term. For this reason, it's clear that collection of information is key. Uh, we have to work with our learners to help them understand how they can gain the most out of these discussions with the patients, uh, specifically working with them to understand how to be an active listener, how to identify any barriers to the patient being able to manage their care, considering access to medication, uh, payer aspects of this whole situation, um, as well as understanding what is within their goals. Um, of course, taking medications chronically in the long term is much different than being admitted to a hospital uh, where you do have healthcare professionals giving you these medications around the clock. Uh, of course, we're putting the ownership on the patient to manage their own health. And as a learner and as a clinician, it is really our role to support them in making their informed decisions and really developing a program or a clinical plan that they can follow. For that reason, a key aspect of this motivational interviewing is going to be identifying what is important to the patient and in what ways can an improvement in their management of their disease state allow them to be more active in those things that they deem important. Now, no learner is going to walk into their first day of an ambulatory care rotation ready to engage in these high-level discussions, the motivational interviewing, while taking into account patient disposition and medication access. Uh, so a good place to start is likely through shadowing and representing how this process should be conducted. This, of course, is much easier when there is an opportunity to build long-term relationships with your patients. And in a rotation that might be four to six weeks, it's very possible that they may have only a couple patients that they've seen uh, more than once during that rotation. Still, these learners must be empowered to really keep active, actively listening and keep focusing on that relationship in real time to allow for their interventions to be more impactful. And while it's easy to consider ambulatory care something, I don't know, exists in a silo or is isolated area in the same way that you can consider the hospital some isolated instance, that is really not the case. And what we're talking about is healthcare across all of these different aspects and highlighting the value of transitions of care. So it might be possible that you have a learner that is not really seeing the benefit of your ambulatory care rotation, not seeing the value of med recs, not seeing the value of supporting uh, insurance and, uh, you know, adjudication. Um, but it's important to acknowledge that no aspect of that is below any pharmacist. Uh, a pharmacist has to be able to, you know, make a recommendation that is not only academically or clinically correct, but that can be implemented to impact patient care. 
Uh, for that reason, there really is nothing below any of your learners when it comes to making sure these patients can get the most out of their medication therapy, uh, and that includes medication reconciliation. Uh, additionally, this highlights the value of an ambulatory care rotation uh, for a learner who is more inpatient focused. Uh, you can consider you know, a PGY2 internal medicine or a PGY2 critical care pharmacist. There is still value in them completing an ambulatory care rotation. Uh, they are going to be managing patients that are on these medications chronically outpatient. They might have changes to medication therapy that must be relayed to the ambulatory care side. Um, all this to say is that an ambulatory care rotation is a unique opportunity that highlights many aspects of these learnings that are not as seen on the inpatient side, but are still um, crucial all the same. Excellent. That's all I have for you all today. Thank you all so much for listening uh, and be sure to tune in next month uh, for a brand new topic. Have a good day, everybody. Hope you all enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, I just want to remind people, if you have an idea for an episode or you want to drop an audio comment or question, uh, you know, record yourself 30 seconds uh, on your phone. Send it to us uh, at preceptresponsibly at gmail.com. We also are on social media, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Find all of our episodes on your favorite podcast providers. We also have these as videos on YouTube. Today's episode was produced by Spencer Sutton. Music by Alex Grohl. That's it for Precept Responsibly. I'm Jason Mordino. And I'm Dave Hughes. Until next time, thanks all for listening. I, I, love, I love giving these two, like, the outtakes they always thrive to get because some stupid comment will always come out of my mouth.